Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Senator Lindsey Graham ordered to testify before a jury in Georgia about phone calls he made to Georgia's election officials. What the jury wants to know and why. Less than two weeks after Nancy Pelosi's historic trip, another U.S. delegation lands in Taiwan for a surprise visit. What message they're bringing and China's reaction. The Taliban celebrating the one-year anniversary of taking over Kabul. A leading foreign policy expert explains what one year of Taliban rule has done to Afghanistan. A Palestinian gunman opens fire at civilians in Jerusalem, wounding at least eight. The Israeli Prime Minister and the Hamas terrorist group react. A lithium mining company is planning a huge mine in Utah, but native tribes say it'll trample on sacred ground. And now they're suing the federal government. And in college football, the Alabama Crimson Tide are number one in the new preseason poll. But where does defending champion Georgia rank? It appears the Department of Justice doesn't want all the details out about the search of former President Trump's home. Today, they asked a federal court not to make public the affidavit that led to the approval of a search warrant. DOJ law lawyers said unsealing the affidavit would, quote, irreparably harm the government's ongoing criminal investigation. They also said it, quote, could have devastating consequences for the reputations and rights of individuals whose actions and statements are described. Following the FBI's raid on Mar-a-Lago, multiple organizations lodged motions to unseal the affidavit and other related documents. U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt, who is overseeing the case, unsealed the search warrant and several attachments last Friday. Meanwhile, in a post on Truth Social today, Trump said that the FBI took away his passports during the raid. And that, quote, this is an assault on a political opponent at a level never seen before in our country. Third world. Trump also says privileged material was taken during last week's raid. Now he's demanding it back. All this while the White House says the raid wasn't political. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Trump wrote on True Social Sunday, the FBI took boxes of privileged attorney-client material and also executive privileged material. He's referring to a Fox News article citing anonymous sources. Attorney-client privilege allows communications between a client and their attorney to be confidential. Trump asked for the documents to be returned immediately. The FBI said it took classified records from Trump's Florida home during an unprecedented raid last week. It's unclear exactly what was in the documents. According to the property receipt, which was unsealed Friday, federal agents took sets of alleged top-secret and confidential documents. But Trump says the records have been declassified. The judge also unsealed the warrant for the raid. It shows Trump is under federal investigation for obstruction of justice and other alleged violations, including concealment, removal, or mutilation of documents, gathering, transmitting, or losing defense information, and destruction, alteration, or falsification of records. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told ABC News that the raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago property was not political. Department of Justice, when it comes to law enforcement, is independent. This is what we believe, and this is what the president has said. But Trump supporters are concerned there's a two-tiered system of justice. 
with one set of rules for Democrats and another set of rules for Trump. Former federal prosecutor and Trump official Cash Patel gave a couple examples on his epic TV show Cash's Corner Friday. Normally, the DOJ refrains from going after a politician around an election cycle, but the Trump raid happened within 90 days of the midterms. He also said the DOJ would normally just call and issue a subpoena for the documents they wanted instead of issuing a search warrant. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. And now to the CDC, which published new guidance last week in its Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. The MMWR reversed many of its pandemic-era recommendations. It now promotes reducing barriers to social, educational, and economic activity. Mass testing and contact tracing are not required, and the agency says its recommendations won't discriminate between vaccinated and unvaccinated. Some say it's time, while others say it's about time. Earlier today, I spoke with Jeffrey Tucker, the founder and president of the think tank Brownstone Institute for Social and Economic Research, for his views on the changes. Jeffrey Tucker, welcome to our show. Nice to be here. Thank you. Now, we've had two and a half years of pandemic restrictions, most of which has been vehemently debated among the medical community. In your opinion, how much sooner could the CDC's reversal have come? The article that they published in the MMWR last week could have been published in the spring of 2020. There wasn't a word in that document that wasn't true back then. We didn't need to be testing asymptomatic people. We didn't need to be distinguished between, between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Natural immunity was always a thing. Uh, quarantine should have applied to the sick, not the whole population and so on and so on it goes. It's just a little puzzling that they would have put this out. I mean, there never was an exit strategy for the lockdowns and the mandates. And what we're seeing with this, with this uh, new uh, uh, document is an attempt for them to roll back everything that they, all the unscientific positions they took before without admitting error while also encouraging people to go ahead and behave normally as everybody has been for a very long time. An untold number of lives have been affected by these restrictions. We've had people losing their jobs to vaccine mandates. We've had kids with learning loss, skyrocketing rates of depression, all sorts of things. How much responsibility do you think the CDC should bear? Well, it, it's, uh, I think they deserve an enormous amount of responsibility. I mean, it's complicated because on one hand, they claimed only to be giving recommendations. On the other hand, if you disobeyed their recommendations, uh, there were there was enforcement there behind it, but it wasn't the CDC doing the enforcement. It was the politicians who, in turn, said that they were deferring to the CDC and so on. It's like the whole system is constructed to avoid responsibility, you know. So it's just this round robin, who's to blame kind of thing, and nobody's stepping up to take uh, r responsibility. So I, I suppose, in some sense, that there, there's a plenty of responsibility to go around. You know, the administrative state, the courts that didn't intervene, the politicians that acquiesced um, and there was a quite a, a lot of subterfuge in, involved in the entire thing so there's there's m many many layers of, of deception and uh, unscientific uh, thinking here and it's very frustrating because the truth is that people are really crying out for answers as you mentioned there's a lot of suffering um, economic suffering and cultural and educational losses and churches have been destroyed more than 100,000 small businesses and so on you would think that after all this there'd be somebody that stood up and said okay we made a mistake but 
nobody's done that yet. And with that in mind, what would accountability look like here? Uh, well, <laughs> I think we need uh, the information uh, out. Uh, and if there, we've got so many questions, so that has to be start at least with some, some hearings. Um, and then, I don't know, you know, it, it, the justice is a very difficult thing because nothing can take away uh, the people's sufferings, you know, the number of people who had to die alone, the, the funerals that have never attended, the, the two years of educational losses. So there's nothing that can happen can make up for this. But at the very least, we need a system in place that prevents anything like this from happening again. But instead of that, we're getting the opposite, which is a construction of, of, of an apparatus that's even going to be more ferocious the next time. This is the most troubling aspect. And we're getting more outbreaks with other diseases and more emergency declarations as well. So looking forward, how do you think the U.S. should deal with these outbreaks? Well, we need to recognize that once the pathogen comes along, the pathogen doesn't go away, especially if it's a coronavirus respiratory virus. Uh, the, the virus is never going to go away. They kept telling us to slow the spread, which really just amounted to prolonging the pain. And now it's going to become endemic, which is to say that our immune systems have to adapt to it. So the correct policy is the one that we had been using for 100 years in 1941 through 44, in 1929 with the parrot flu, in 68, 69 with the Asian flu, in 57, 58 with Hong Kong flu, and so on, so on, to 2013 and, and, and going all the way back, which is to say uh, that you protect the vulnerable, you build up herd immunity in the population through uh, a, a scaling up of immune systems uh, and, and trusting natural immunity which is the way that we're getting out of this pandemic through natural immunity. The vaccines were leaky, to say the best, and certainly in most cases, the harms of them outweighed their, their benefits. If there were any benefit that lasted longer than three months, we don't even know that. Um, so we need to go back to traditional standards of public health that we had in place as recently as 2019. You know, that's, that's the lesson here. Don't let uh, crazy scientists be in charge of taking over society in the event of uh, the pathogenic spread. Just don't do it. And I'm just not sure if that's the lesson we're taking away here. And the and CDC didn't follow the Great Barrington Declaration, but you're saying that now they are. Could you elaborate yeah, on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Great Barrington Declaration said what I just said, that the virus has to become endemic. You need to disrupt society as little as possible rely on herd immunity uh, strategies to, uh, not strategies, but on the reality of herd immunity to protect the vulnerable and move on with life. That's that's the way uh, traditional public health dealt with it. And that seems to be more or less what CDC is saying now, which is more or less what the Great Barrington Declaration said in on October 4th, 2020. And, um, you know, it's, it's just remarkable because when that document came out, you had uh, the head of NIH writing to the to Anthony Fauci, this is Francis Collins writing to Anthony Fauci saying, we need to do a quick and hard takedown, just devastating takedown were his actual words of the Great Branton Declaration. And so they did. They assigned their reporters and commenced the smears and, and, and that sort of thing. And here we are two and a half years later, or two years later, and uh, everybody recognizes that the Great Branton Declaration was, was correct all along. I would just like some, some honesty. That's you know, you asked earlier about, you know, how, what does justice look like? I think justice has to begin with truth. Jeffrey Tucker from Brownstone Institute, thank you so much for your time. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much.
And in election news, Senator Lindsey Graham has been ordered to testify before a jury about phone calls he made to Georgia election officials during the 2020 election. Former mayor of New York City Rudy Giuliani is now also a target in this investigation. Here's NTD's Melina Weisskopf with more. A federal judge in Georgia has now denied Senator Lindsey Graham's bid to reject a subpoena, meaning the South Carolina senator will now have to testify before Georgia's Fulton County grand jury. This grand jury is currently investigating former President Donald Trump's allegations of voter fraud in Georgia during the 2020 presidential election. The grand jury mainly wants to ask Graham about two phone calls he made to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his staff. He asked the official to take another look at absentee ballots. Senator Graham appealed the first subpoena, saying his inquiries were legitimate since he had to vote on certifying the election. Senator Graham went to federal court and relied on the Constitution in arguing that, hey, you can't call me in to testify because what I would be talking about would be privileged information as part of my legislative duties. That federal judge, Judge May, rejected that argument completely and said, you've stepped outside of your role when you made these calls to the Secretary of State in Georgia. The judge ruled that the Fulton County District Attorney has shown, quote, extraordinary circumstances and a special need for Senator Graham's testimony. Attorney Willis, a Democrat, opened the investigation in 2021 and has subpoenaed Graham and Representative Jody Heiss, as well as five others, focusing on alleged misconduct among allies of former President Donald Trump related to the 2020 election. Graham is required to testify next week on August 23rd. But this could change if the senator appeals the ruling as expected. Senator Graham, I think, has already indicated uh, through his office that they're going to continue to challenge this. If so, they have to seek permission to challenge it in front of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is here in Atlanta. Now, these court rulings revolving around Senator Lindsey Graham's subpoena comes as Georgia prosecutors are now saying that Rudy Giuliani is a target in their investigation. Giuliani is expected to appear before the grand jury in Georgia later this week after previously delaying his appearance before the grand jury last week due to a health issue. So while Giuliani is expected to be in Georgia to give that witness testimony this week, attorneys say he will try to safeguard conversations between himself and former President Trump. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. And looking to Asia, a second U.S. congressional visit to Taiwan this month. China restarts its military drills and U.S. lawmakers vow to prevent a conflict. NTD's Iris Tao has more. In defying Beijing's threats, U.S. lawmakers once again travel to Taiwan and meet with its top leadership. At this moment of uncertainty, we must do everything we can to maintain peace and stability for Taiwan. Led by Democratic Senator Ed Markey, the bipartisan delegation of five is on a surprise two-day trip to Taiwan. They landed on Sunday, just 12 days after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's historic visit. And China announcing new military drills on Monday around the democratically ruled island, which Beijing sees as its own. That's after days of firing missiles into the Taiwan Strait over Pelosi's visit. The Taiwanese president decries Beijing's threats. Russia's invasion of Ukraine earlier this year has shown the threat that authoritarian nations pose to the global order while vowing to strive for peace. 
to jointly maintain prosperity and stability throughout the Indo-Pacific region. Maraki responds by citing Washington's duty and the support for Taiwan's democracy. We have a moral obligation to do everything we can to prevent an unnecessary conflict. And Taiwan has demonstrated incredible restraint and discretion during challenging times. And in the Middle East, it's been a year since the Taliban took over the Afghan capital city of Kabul. NTD's Jason Perry speaks with a leading expert in foreign policy to get his take on Afghanistan one year later. Singing filled the streets of Afghanistan as they labeled Monday a new holiday. The Taliban calls it the first anniversary of the return to power. One year ago, on August 15th, they seized the Afghan capital of Kabul during the U.S. military's evacuation of Afghanistan. Over 70,000 Afghans were relocated to the United States, and 13 U.S. service members were killed during the evacuation operation. Now the Taliban can be seen with U.S. military weapons and equipment, and the rights of Afghan women have changed significantly. The big difference we see in our life is that the girls' schools are banned. We have not studied for the past year, and this is hard to compensate for. Department of State spokesman Ned Price recognized the one-year anniversary as well. We'll also keep supporting the Afghan people during the dire economic times as the largest donor of humanitarian aid to the people of Afghanistan. I spoke with James Carafano. He's the vice president of the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank. I mean, there's zero oversight about aid that's going into Afghanistan. One of the goals of the 20-year war was to prevent Afghanistan from becoming a safe haven for terrorists. We just had the news a few weeks ago that the, the most wanted terrorist in the world was basically living openly in Kabul, in the capital, uh, being hosted by the Haqqani Network, which is the group that brought the al-Qaeda to Afghanistan to begin with. Carafano also explained that there's about 20 million people without enough food or water in Afghanistan. We reached out to the Department of State for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. And we have an update on the condition of Salman Rushdie, the author stabbed on stage last Friday in New York. He's been taken off the ventilator and is recovering from his injuries. Rushdie's agent told CNN, quote, it will be long. The injuries are severe, but his condition is headed in the right direction. Rushdie's injuries included three stabs to his neck, four stabs to his stomach, puncture wounds to his right eye and chest, and a laceration on his right thigh. He might lose one eye. The 24-year-old suspect, Hadi Matar, has pleaded not guilty. The author has faced decades of death threats for his writings critical of Islam. Iran responded to the stabbing today, saying Rushdie and his supporters are to blame for the attack because he denigrated the world's Muslims. The regime's foreign ministry also said no one has the right to accuse Iran for the stabbing. And at least eight people in Jerusalem are wounded after a gunman opened fire at a bus on Sunday. The victims include five Americans. A Palestinian gunman opened fire at a bus, stopped near the Western Wall in Jerusalem's Old City. It was around 1.30 a.m. local time on Sunday. At least eight people were shot, including five Americans. When I got to the scene, I saw a few people lying on the floor in critical condition. Three of them were in critical condition, 
and not a few that were lightly injured. We also had a baby that we took out of harm's way, and all of them were transferred to the hospital for taking care. One of the victims in critical condition is a pregnant woman, and another is a man with injuries to his head and neck. At least two of the Americans were tourists. The Israeli prime minister said the suspect turned himself in to Israeli police and that he is a resident of Jerusalem with a criminal record. Police did not release his identity. There is one conclusion from this event, as from previous events. Whoever harms the citizens of Israel will have nowhere to run. We will hunt them down and get them everywhere, and we will deal with them with the full severity of the law. The Islamic terrorist group Hamas, which runs the Gaza Strip, responded to the attack on Sunday. They called it a heroic and brave operation and said the attack is a natural response to Israel's recent military activities in the Gaza Strip. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. A pharmaceutical company is being sued over alleged severe side effects of its vaccine and deceiving the Food and Drug Administration. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. represents some of the plaintiffs, and he told our reporter this vaccine does more harm than good. Pharmaceutical company Merck produces the Gardasil vaccine, which is supposed to protect patients from HPV, a virus that can cause cancer and genital infections. Some people are suing Merck over the drug's alleged severe side effects. This month, over 30 lawsuits against Merck were consolidated, and they'll be brought before the same judge in North Carolina. Lawyer Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is representing some of the plaintiffs in the case. He tells NTD one of the vaccine's main side effects is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS for short. He says POTS leads primarily to four symptoms, devastating fatigue, nausea, strong headaches, and fainting. I think we are going to be able to show in court that Merck deliberately deceived the health authorities by deliberately adopting a very narrow definition of POTS that excluded 90% of the cases. The people it tested this vaccine on were like the Avengers. They were like superhumans. They're people who you could probably shoot with a bullet and nothing would happen to them. He says when Merck tested for POTS during the clinical trial, they tested for very rare possible side effects in addition to the four main ones. So the people who had only the four main symptoms weren't counted as having gotten POTS. So what's the possible impact for Merck after the lawsuits? It needs to maybe pay punitive damages that will deter it from giving out, from mass vaccinating it, this population. Kennedy is the host of RFK Jr., the Defender podcast, in which he talks more about the issue. The Gardasil vaccine is given mostly to young girls to prevent them from getting cervical cancer when they're around 50 years old. Mary Holland is the president of Children's Health Defense, a nonprofit organization. She's also the author of the book, The HPV Vaccine on Trial, Seeking Justice for a Generation Betrayed. Holland says there's no evidence that the vaccine actually prevents girls from getting cancer 40 years after the shot partly because the vaccine has been around for only 15 years. Cancer. On the contrary, actually, there's evidence in the clinical trials that in some people, if they actually already had an active cervical infection or if they had antibodies, it actually might increase the odds of your developing cancer. She says there are many more possible side effects to the Gardasil vaccine besides POTS, including intestinal problems in which people can't eat anything. 
and literally brain fog. Like people, you know, 16 year old girls descending down to the level of three year olds. This is what we've seen um, as the terrible side effects from Gardasil. According to immunize.org, HPV vaccines are mandatory for elementary and secondary schools in four states across the U.S. Holland says parents who don't want their kids to get the shot can apply for religious exemptions in those states. We reached out to Merck, asking for a statement on the allegations, but didn't hear back before broadcast. Arian Pastar, NTD News. And native tribes are suing the federal government over a multi-billion dollar lithium mining project. They say the project approval was premature and it will ultimately destroy sacred land. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Located in northern Nevada, Thacker Pass is 18,000 acres of sprawling sagebrush land. Underneath is the largest known lithium deposit in the U.S. In January 2021, the federal government gave a Canadian company called Lithium Americas approval to break ground on Thacker Pass for a multi-billion dollar mining project. Environmentalist Max Wilbert says lithium mining is not a good idea. It involves major environmental impacts from the strip mining to the chemicals such as sulfuric acid, which are required to refine ore, to the pollution that comes out of the factories. Lithium Americas plans to develop a 400-foot-deep open-pit mining operation, also called continuous mining. The project is expected to span more than 5,000 acres and lasts for about 40 years. Lithium is what the Biden administration needs for its $2 trillion clean energy plan because lithium is a key material for electric car manufacturing. But concerned tribes have filed lawsuits. A spokesperson for the Reno Sparks Indian Colony says the Bureau of Land Management didn't do its job. So they only reached out and only sent letters um, to three tribes, the closest to the project. When in the state of Nevada and the Great Basin, there are a lot of Paiute and Shoshone people that attach cultural significance to Sacred Pass. She said the letters were sent at the height of the pandemic in 2020 when tribes were on lockdown. Thacker Pass is the site of a documented massacre by the U.S. Cavalry in 1865. And since then, descendants of the Paiute and Shoshone peoples have honored this land in a sacred way. We go up there, we sing our old Paiute and Shoshone songs, just like our ancestors sang 150 years ago and even thousands of years ago. We go up there, we do um, our circle dances, we light a fire, um, and we off we make offerings. As traditional Native people, the connection to our lands is the connections of how we are. We reached out to the Bureau of Land Management and they told NTD in an email they had no comment. In February 2021, they said that public review and participation are encouraged. We also reached out to Lithium Americas, but they didn't get back to us before broadcast time. In April, a spokesperson told Boise State Public Radio the company spent more than 10 years conducting the environmental studies needed for the permit. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up in college football, the Alabama Crimson Tide are number one in the new preseason poll, as expected. NTD's Dave Martin has the rest of the top ten. And in Southern California, a commemoration was held calling for the release of a lawyer who put his life on the line for his clients. That and more after the break.
now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. The AP's preseason college football poll is out and Alabama tops the list yet again. The Crimson Tide have been ranked first to start the season now seven times in their 15 years under Nick Saban. Alabama finished runner-up last season to Georgia but has won six national titles during Saban's reign in Tuscaloosa. With reigning Heisman Trophy winner Bryce Young and National Defensive Player of the Year Will Anderson Jr. returning, Alabama received 54 of a possible 63 first-place votes. Coming in second behind them was perennial favorite Ohio State, which received six first-place votes. In third, defending champion Georgia, which had a record 15 players selected in the NFL draft, including five defensive players in the first round alone. Rounding out the top five was Clemson and Notre Dame, which will face each other in a heavyweight matchup in November. But first, the Irish kick off the season with a much-anticipated showdown against the Buckeyes on September 3rd in Columbus. Texas A&M, which handed Alabama their only regular season loss last year, was number six, while defending Pac-12 champ Utah, which lost to Ohio State in a thrilling Rose Bowl to end last year, is seventh. Michigan is eighth after winning the Big Ten Championship, while Big 12 schools Oklahoma and Baylor round out the top ten. In basketball news, Brittany Griner's legal team is appealing her nine-year Russian prison sentence for drug possession charges. The maximum sentence Griner faced was 10 years, and Russian media have quoted Griner's legal team as saying the length of the sentence is excessive. They said similar cases resulted in five-year sentences, and some of them were granted parole. Griner was convicted on August 4th after Russian authorities found cannabis oil in her luggage at a Moscow airport back in February. The 31-year-old WNBA star said she inadvertently packed it in her haste and had no criminal intent. The eight-time WNBA All-Star provided a U.S. doctor's note saying it had been prescribed for pain. Griner is considered wrongfully detained by the U.S. State Department and it's been widely reported that the U.S. has offered Russian arms dealer Victor Boot in a prisoner swap. Finally, in baseball news, the Texas Rangers fired manager Chris Woodward Monday after three-plus years at the helm. Woodward has yet to post a winning season, and expectations were high after Texas invested a combined half a billion dollars in contracts for middle infielders Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon last offseason. But the Rangers struggled to a 51-63 record as pitching woes plagued the team. In addition to spending big on Seager and Simeon, Texas signed starting pitcher John Gray to a four-year, $56 million contract last December. But the results haven't put them into playoff contention or even a better than 500 record. Third base coach Tony Beasley has been named interim manager for the rest of the season. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. Now, a woman in Southern California has marked a tragic anniversary over the weekend. Her husband, a human rights lawyer in China, has been missing for the past five years and is believed to be imprisoned by the Chinese regime. Now, the woman is once again calling for his release. NTD's Jackie Rios has more. Saturday marked the fifth year since Gao Shishen, a respected human rights lawyer, disappeared in China. 
He represented faith groups that have been victims of the Chinese Communist Party's or CCP's persecution. For representing House Christians and following on practitioners, Gao has been detained and tortured on and off since 2006. His wife, Gung Ha, mentioned how Gao would take pro bono cases and dare to take cases that CCP didn't want lawyers to take. I feel he's a very responsible person. At home, he was a good husband and a good father. So his sense of responsibility carried over to his work. So being a lawyer, he worked especially hard on his job. He worked as his responsibility and his mission. So when he wasn't struggling for an income, he'd have one-third of his cases as pro bono. So this really touched me too. He really used his talents to provide help to people who needed it, including free help. Even for Falun Gong or Christians, the CCP didn't allow him to take the cases, but he took them anyway. He used his kind heart and his profession to do that work. Gong explained how she has lost family members due to the CCP's harassment. More tragic thing is during these five years, the CCP continuously harassed Gao's older sister. Since she was always concerned for her little brother's well-being, whether he was dead or alive, she fell into depression. Finally, in May 2020, she drowned herself in a river. The local police wouldn't let my brother-in-law leave the area for fear he'd look for Gao. They took away his ID, forced him to sign documents at the station, and wouldn't let him leave. My brother-in-law was ill at that time. He needed to get medicine and see a doctor, but they always made things difficult for him. He eventually jumped off a building to his death. To commemorate the five-year anniversary, Gong and supporters of Gao gathered in front of the Chinese consulate in Los Angeles to call for his release. I come here to support. I try to, uh, together to, with other peoples, we hope that Mr. Gorgian can be released and get his freedom, and he also can he, uh, continue to fight for the people in China for their human rights. Felipe Alexander, a human rights lawyer who attended the rally, mentioned the difference between the rural law for lawyers in China and the United States. Because here I can take any cause I want. Uh, often I even sue the American government on behalf of my clients if I feel that they've been egregious or they haven't been appropriate towards my clients. Uh, that is unthinkable in China. And so you have people like Mr. Gao who are brave enough to go against the establishment, who are brave enough to take on sensitive cases, and they're simply unable to do so. Gong last heard from her husband on August 13, 2017. She says she follows his model of being an upright citizen and helping others. Jackie Rios, NTD News, Los Angeles. Also over the weekend, hundreds of people paraded through the main streets of Chicago's Chinatown. Their costumes, banners and music attracted the attention of the visitors who learned about their cause. Hundreds of Falun Gong practitioners from the Midwest gathered in Chicago's Chinatown on Saturday. They were raising awareness about the persecution of Falun Gong by the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, is a spiritual practice rooted in the Buddhist tradition with the core tenets of truthfulness, compassion, and tolerance. It's been persecuted by the CCP for 23 years. Aaron Kuang is a visiting student from China who saw the parade. 
I think their slogans are very good. They are non-violent, and they recognize the evil nature of the CCP. The CCP launched a campaign to eradicate Falun Gong due to its popularity in 1999. The party has imprisoned and tortured over 100,000 practitioners, and thousands have died from the torture in custody. Kuang said the CCP is not only harmful to its own people, but also to the world. He cites the CCP virus as an example. The virus originated from Wuhan and spread out, and then the CCP locked down Wuhan, but didn't suspend flights to other parts of the world, intentionally causing an outbreak. A visitor from Wisconsin enjoyed the float and the exercise demonstrations at the parade. It was beautiful. It was very interesting and very cool to see, and I liked everything that I saw. Even though Falun Gong is persecuted in China, the practice is widespread around the world. Sophia Getcher from Michigan said Falun Gong's moral teachings and exercises cured her chronic depression and suicidal tendencies. I am eternally grateful for this practice. I'm a happy person now, very productive, and um, life is so much easier. Today, Falun Gong is freely practiced outside of China in 96 countries. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. And China's big tech firms are giving their algorithm information to the Chinese regime. This is the first time ever that something like this has happened. Algorithms are a key trade secret for many tech firms, which have a lot of data on their users. NTD's Colin Fredrickson reports. China's tech giants have shared information about their precious algorithms with state regulators. The Cyberspace Administration of China is creating a registration system for those algorithms, which is completely unprecedented. The algorithms determine basically what you see in the feed, what you're interested in, um, and it gives the tech companies an idea of what kind of content to put in front of you. Jeremy Knopf is the founder of Spartan Media. Knopf says the algorithms choose what to put in front of you based on your previous activity. Your activity becomes a lot of data, which tell a lot about you. The main prize for the Chinese Communist Party is the data. And the data that is now being made available by these companies, uh, including data, by the way, they've obtained from their American partners. Frank Gaffney is the chairman of the Committee on the Present Danger China and one of the authors of The CCP is at War with America. Gaffney says whatever the party wants, it gets. Another factor is control. The Chinese Communist Party right now has been tightening its grip on you know, on technology companies, and they've been doing it for some time. Chuck Flint is the president of Flint Consulting, a strategic communications and public policy consulting firm. Flint says other examples of the CCP wanting control is with the COVID lockdowns, bank withdrawal restrictions, and the events surrounding Jack Ma. I don't think that there's any chance of that happening other in any place other than communist China. Uh, and that is because of the power of the party. I mean, people don't realize that the party controls everything. Algorithms are a key trade secret of big tech firms. The algorithm information that the Cyberspace Administration of China has shown the public is very brief in general. However, we don't know how much information it has gotten from the companies behind the scenes. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And over in Ukraine, with Russia's invasion entering its sixth month, some fear the long-term result could be an environmental disaster. 
These divers are demining experts searching a river in Ukraine. Ukrainian forces took back the Sumy region from Russian forces in April. But four months on, cannon shells are still being fished out in its waters. Ukraine's Environment Ministry estimates it'll take at least a decade to clear all the mines and explosives from the country. And there are fears long-term war could mean an environmental disaster, leaving Ukraine's waters contaminated for years to come. Denis Monastirsky is Ukraine's interior minister. It is known that water demining will go on for years. It is the area where we have a lot of work to do. We estimate the work that has to be done to demine Ukraine's waters will take at least five to seven years. Why? Because it's the most difficult type of demining. Ukraine's emergency service in June said more than 239 square miles of land littered with thousands of explosives had been cleared, but nearly 160,000 square miles are still seen as contaminated. Sofia Suragurska at the Center for Environmental Initiatives warns that the efforts to remove the unexploded devices may not be enough to protect the ecosystem and human health. These territories are affected not just by mining itself, but also by um, heavy pollution from explosions and from rockets and from the moving of the, for example, uh, military troops. So to just remove mines on these territories will not be enough to restore all this unique ecosystem. An estimated 27% of Ukraine's land needs demining. Last week, the U.S. government approved $89 million in funding to help in the efforts. Coming up, out in the San Francisco Bay, some sailors seek to inspire today's youth and the public. Traditional sailing ships is how they're doing it. And the Illinois State Fair is underway. We'll take a look at some of the main attractions and hear from visitors after this short break. Before planes, the one way around the world was to hoist your sails and set off on the seven seas. One sailing crew and its volunteers in the Bay Area are working to keep sailing the traditional way. NTD's David Lamb has that story. Two, six, These passengers have their hands full as they get to be sailors for the afternoon. They're on board a 132-foot wooden ship assisting the crew to set sail in the San Francisco Bay. I think today it was a really good sail. We got a lot of wind, especially later as we got closer to San Francisco and by Alcatraz, which is where it picks up and gets a lot of fun. The $6 million ship took seven years to build, has an 11-sail brigantine design, and comes with a deep history. It was named after an iconic and prolific shipbuilder from San Francisco. Now the Matthew Turner is specially designed after another historical ship called the Galilee, which was built in the late 1800s. And it also held the fastest sail record from San Francisco to Tahiti. Now parts of her are in San Francisco, parts of her are in Benicia, which is Matthew Turner's original shipyard location. Part of her is sunk in Sausalito, like literally a quarter mile from us. The hybrid ship stands about 100 feet tall and produces her own energy harnessed from the wind. She regenerates her two electric motors when sailing. She's one of two ships from Call of the Sea, a nonprofit in Sausalito that local sailors founded in 1985. 
Alan Olson, the co-founder, said he partnered with the San Francisco Police Department in the past to take students from youth reform schools out to sea. It was a very, very powerful thing, and we could see how it was really changing these kids and how much they liked doing it. All right, turns course, turns lower. They're dedicated to sharing traditional maritime sailing and its deep history to today's youth with their floating classroom, a chance to sail on traditionally rigged vessels. I think it's really fun. I mean, it's kind of cold, but I think it's like there's really pretty views and stuff. And I've like been on like the coast around here, and it's a really different perspective. I prefer being on water than on land, if that makes sense. Uh, so living on a boat, working on a boat, and just constantly sailing almost every single day, it's, it's where I need to be. <laughs> also, I think that young people don't realize how many options they have. They grow up in a bubble, and they don't really see outside of that bubble. But you put them on a ship and go someplace or spend some time on it, and all of a sudden, they see other ideas. Call of the Seas crew is sailing strong to keep traditional sailing in the Bay Area and beyond. David Lamb, NTD News, California. And back on land, Illinois ranks as the seventh largest state in agricultural production in the U.S. and it's currently hosting its state fair. The fair attracts hundreds of thousands of visitors annually with shows and entertainment. Here's the story. The governor of Illinois unveiled the iconic butter cow to kick off the Illinois State Fair in Springfield, Illinois last week. The 11-day fair brings fun to visitors with shows, exhibits, food, and a carnival. Dennis Schall comes from a four-generation farm family and is preparing his sheep for the livestock show. The show is a combination of uh, uh, a bodybuilding contest and a beauty pageant, so uh, got to have some muscle and expression to him. Uh, but they've also got to look, uh, look the part uh, with some show ring appeal and some class and, and style there as well. The livestock will compete for the championship of each category, and the winners will have the opportunity to participate in the governor's sale of champions. Avery Fry will participate in the hog show and is practicing her showmanship. I practice walking them back and forth. Harness racing on the Illinois racetrack, known as one of the fastest dirt tracks in the world, thrilled visitor Keeley Folk from Morris, Illinois. Horse racing was pretty exciting to do. The food attracted Graceland Greenberg, the Miss Ford County Fair Queen. She says tasting food is her favorite activity, besides competing for Miss Illinois County Fair Queen. There's so many different things to try, and getting to try different things from every stand is always such a fun time. The carnival offers rides and games with prizes. Luke Hall, a local resident, enjoyed the rides. The ring of fire, that's one. You go upside down in a ring. It's really fun. Brody Newhoff, also a local resident, is visiting the fair for the first time with a group of friends. I just won this lion. I shot a basketball. Like Kobe Bryant, my favorite player. The Illinois State Fair also features Conservation World, exhibit that teaches about nature and live performances, such as Jetpack Flying Water Circus and much more. The fair runs through Sunday. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Springfield, Illinois. And more in entertainment, many thought that the pandemic squeeze meant the end of movie theater outings. But this summer's movie season is wrapping up with several high-grossing films. Let's hear more from NTD's Sean Marshall. While movie ticket sales still haven't gotten back to 2019 numbers, 
movie executives see things changing to a positive direction. There's no question that we're coming back in relevance and in actual behavior. Martin thinks theaters need a little something extra to get back to old norms. There needs to be good incentive, you know, like like some of these movie theaters have the really nice reclining seats. Some of them are even doing like they bring food to you while you're there. You could order it on your phone, stuff like that. Yeah, you know, like they got to make it worthwhile. It has to be an experience. It can't just be like a generic walk in, buy your popcorn, sit down in the crusty seats and watch a movie, you know. <clears throat> it's really got to stand out, I feel like. So far this year, the opening weekend hauls of six movies have exceeded 91 million. And at the time of this report, popular meme stock AMC has been on the rise for the past month. I have a pretty good home theater set up at home and and I'll usually get whatever, you know, movies that come out like the Marvel movies or the DC movies and all that stuff, just watch it at home. But like if something really, really catches my eye and it's like really unique, like a new IP and totally new movie, um, then I'll go and see it in the theaters. If you're wondering whether movie theaters can have a post-pandemic comeback, IMAX CEO had this to say in the company's last earnings call. Since 1980, the U.S. has seen several recessionary years, and in all of those years, gross box office grew. Consider that for IMAX, our fastest pace of network growth ever was during the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009. Sean Marshall, NTD News. And a movie which ruled the box office skies earlier this summer flew back into the top five this weekend. Here's the top five countdown. Jordan Peele's Nope noped out of the top three, landing in fifth place this weekend on ticket sales of $5.3 million. Thor Love and Thunder finished fourth just barely ahead of Nope with $5.31 million. Thanks to a fan appreciation event and an increased theater count, Top Gun Maverick soared back into third, up from sixth place with $7.15 million. Like a dog with its favorite chew toy, DC League of Super Pets didn't let go of second place this weekend with $7.2 million. Brad Pitt's Bullet Train did not slow down in its second weekend in theaters, holding on to first place with $13.4 million, bringing its two-week domestic total to $54.5 million. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.